I hear in all of that resistance, the scared little children. Now, because I can feel empathy for and compassion for that scared little child doesn't mean I allow the adult to misbehave. I can simultaneously disallow toxic behavior and empathetically hold the source of that behavior. But first, a word from this show's sponsor. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this, or they'll never go for this, or I'm not a good enough leader? The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help leaders and organizations unlock their growth. Check out www.mindsetshift.co.uk for more information. Let's get into today's episode. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Jerry Colonna. He is a CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, an executive coaching and leadership development company that committed to the notion better humans make better leaders. As you all know, that notion is very close to my heart and the work that I do. He's also an author of the book Reboot Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, which is a brilliant book I highly, highly recommend. He's also one of Silicon Valley's most renowned CEO and executive coaches, dubbed the CEO Whisperer, as he worked with a lot of big brands that you know, such as Etsy as an example. Prior to that, he had a very, very successful career as a venture capitalist, being one of the prominent members of the early development in Silicon Valley. Whatever you are, whatever you're doing, settle in and enjoy this impactful and insightful conversation Let's get into it. After that introduction, mic drop, I'm done. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was a delight. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, it's an honor to be here and, you know, just find kindred souls across the world. It's like uh, we all have to look out for each other and find each other. It's like we have to have those little hand signals. And so thanks for setting this up and inviting me on the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And like I said, I always like to start with origin story, how things came about. And I guess for you, we're going to go back to those days where you were interning at the copy desk. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're, really we're going way back. <laughs> <laughs> because and the reason why I actually want to do that is you went from interning to in five years, you were the editor of the magazine. Right. I was just curious as to that trajectory, which seemed really, really quick, as to how you actually navigated that so quickly and, and, and the lessons from that. Thank you for bringing that up and remembering that detail. You're right. I secured a job when I was in college in university as part of a scholarship that a company had offered, and it came with this internship for the summer. And I guess looking back, because I didn't know any better, I just worked as if it was my real job. And kept asking for more and more responsibility, kept doing more and more. 
I suppose I made myself useful because I started getting news assignments. I came in and I was working on the copy desk, which is where you normally would put someone who studies language and correcting grammatical errors and that sort of thing. And I remember one day I was like kind of arrogant and I was making faces about this story that I was editing because it was terrible. And the news editor walked by and he said, what's the problem? And I said, the story is terrible. And he said, do you think you could do a better job? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, all right, go re-report it. I'm like, oh, I don't know how to do that. But I did. And I ended up breaking some news. This was a technology trade magazine. So at least we get any mistake. This was not the Washington Post. And I wasn't breaking Watergate. But it was that kind of like, I'll try it. I'll do anything. And by the end of the summer, my internship was technically over. And the editor-in-chief called me into his office and said, here's the assignment I'd like you to do next week. And I said, well, I'm actually done. Friday is my last day. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's not happening. <laughs> I'll never forget. He gave me, I'm an American, obviously, from my accent. He gave me a raise from $4.50 an hour to $5 an hour. And... <laughs> which was less than I was making at a part-time job working in a bookshop. So I said, well, all right, I'll take it. And I took the job. And yeah, within a few years, mostly because, all joking aside, as is often the case, my ascension throughout that organization came as a direct result of people believing in me and taking a shot. And when they had no reason to believe in me. and the only way I would have had any success in my life all came about because some random person who had power and agency looked at me and said, let's give this kid a shot. So anyway, long-winded response to a very pleasant memory. Thank you. And even though it was someone who sounds like it's that sponsorship that we talked about, who saw you and saw that there was something about you that you were obviously showcasing that you thought there's something special about you. There's something that the work ethic that you're putting in, the way that you were going about what you were doing, that stood out to other people to them maybe to recognize, be like, actually, I'm going to open doors and create paths for you to be able to step into. You bring that out. And I tend not to spend a lot of time thinking about what people see in me. It's an odd perspective, but you're causing me to recall that. And another quick memory came came up for me. A few years after uh, that story I just told, and the editor-in-chief, his name was Drake Lindell, and he just recently passed away. So God rest his soul. But he was promoted to publisher and then hired a replacement, a woman named Becky Barner. I mean, there was a circuitous route, but eventually it was Becky, Rebecca Barner. And I remember I was just a news editor, meaning I had been promoted from reporter and I was responsible for editing news stories and assigning news stories, but I wasn't yet editor of the, the magazine. And one day she came to me and <laughs> she had the same look on her face that I had years before. She looked at me, she sat down next to me and she said, this cover story that she just edited is a mess. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, that writer's pretty crappy. And she said, can you fix it? I said, Becky, it's Thursday night. We're going to print tomorrow. She said, what can you do? So I said, I'll give it a shot. 
And I basically took all of the reporter's notes and spent all night and rewrote a cover story starting around 10 o'clock at night on Thursday. And, you know, we go to print and we went to print at noon on Friday. We send it to the printing plant. And after which she came in and she said, okay, we need you to do that all the time. I was like, I can't do that. And she said, no, no, no. We're going to promote you again. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned the book. Years later, decades later, Becky and I haven't spoken. We'll ping each other on Facebook. But another friend reached out and had read my book. And she, she said, it was a mutual friend from that time. And she said, I said, how did you find the book? And, and she said, Becky told me about it. Becky told you about it. Yeah, she's been watching you for decades. And so, yeah, now I'm going to cry. I've had guardian angels looking out for me all of my life. There have been quite a few in my career. And Becky's one of them. By the way, I've never told anybody that wow. story. So, there you go. That's so beautiful. That's the words that really just came to mind. That that's so beautiful that even after all this, all these years, she's still watching and I'm sure she's smiling and being like, yeah, that's, that's, that's Jerry. That's, that's who I knew. That's who I saw. Yeah. I think of those days a lot when I sit down to write, you know, as I told you before, I'm working on a new book. When I feel inspired, it's I think about the leaders and the managers that I've had in my life, each of whom believed in me and gave me a shot at doing something that I'd never done before. Like my editor giving me a contract to write a book. Like, what? You actually believe in me? I'm still astounded by that fact. Do you ever stop and think, I can't do this? Or do you normally think, or because the person believed in me, I'm going to do this? Or how about both? I wrote in the afterward to uh, Reboot. I talked about how my partner, Allie, both my co-founder at the company, but more important, my life partner, I wrote that book mostly on the weekends. And I would get up early on a Saturday or Sunday and she'd say, do you want to do this today? No, I have to write. And then I'd sit and sit at the computer and I would do anything but write. I would listen to music, I would clean out closets, I would, you know, <laughs> all this stuff. <laughs> We'd get together for dinner and she'd say to me, so how'd the writing go? I was like, don't ask. I don't know why. I got to hand the money back. This is terrible. I'm never going to get this done. And she'd just sort of look at me and just, just shut up and get back to work, which is what I needed. And because people believe in me, because... We'll talk about what's going on right now, right? I'm writing a new book that is a continuation. By the way, nobody knows this other than my editor so and a few other people in my life. So here, breaking news. I'm writing a new a book that's kind of a continuation of the first book in which I talk about our three motivations being love, safety, and belonging. And I'm really looking at the question of how non-grown-up leaders create toxic environments that undermine a sense of belonging. And if you can't tell from my accent, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm a white guy. I'm a straight, cisgendered white guy. 
which means a lot of the folks who look like me are part of the problem. And what I am leaning into is the fact that we cannot really address systemic oppression without systemic belonging. And you can't get there unless folks who look like me, who hold power, are willing to look at their shit and grow up and lead from a place of strength and courage instead of from fear and power domination. When I think about writing the new book, the people who believe in me, you didn't say this, but I'll put words in your mouth, are the people who read the first book and said, there's something here. I, I believe in this guy. And so in a sense, I'm writing this next book for all the people who read and were moved by the first book, 50,000 people so far, I guess, who need to know what else to do. I guess living into what people believe is a powerful, energetic motivator. Yeah, it is. And it's something that happens at all levels. I mean, before we came in, we were talking about kids and different things like that. And even when you look at parenting mm. and you having belief in mm. your child to be like, I, I believe in you, There's something special and powerful about that, where they might feel like, oh, I couldn't do this, but either with a parent saying, I believe in you, you can do this, it gives them that courage. And the same thing happens in work as well. As a leader to be able to say to someone, I believe in you, you can do this, go ahead and, and go for it. It sparks that inner flame inside of them that, you know what, I don't completely believe in myself, but because this person, this magnanimous character believes in me, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and, and try and do that because there's, there's something about that person that I respect and that is driving me forward to give me some little bit of confidence, a little inner faith. The faith of the tiny mustard seed of faith, which is enough to keep you pressing on. You said you've got kids. Yeah. How old are they? 14 and 12. And what are their names? Isaiah and Nanaya. So boy and a girl? Boy and a girl, yeah. Here's the, here's the question. And I'll, I'll speak a little bit like your elder brother. Can you be the man that they believe you are? Yes. Because remember, they believe in you too. That is part of the thing that motivates me, is to live into the belief that my children have in me. Even when they're ticked off at me, even when they can't stand me, the knowing, knowing that they believe in me and that they hold me to high standards compels me. That is what, what authentic leadership is for me and how I see it. So when people ask me, why do you do what you do? And I say, one of the primary reasons is I always wanted to be in a position where my kids can look up at me and say, daddy practices what he preaches. His actions Mm -hmm. go before his words. And when he's busy encouraging us about different things, we can look at him and say, he steps outside of his comfort zone. He, He does that. He models that. And that thought, that belief keeps on driving me forward because I know I need to be a good example to my kids. I agree completely. And I'll make a broader connection. I think what we're both saying is that the leaders that we aspire to help are those, both of us as coaches, 
are those who I would argue are mindful of both their ancestors and their descendants. They want to live up to those who came before, in my case, Becky, right? Or Drake or others who believe, and the list is very long. And then the descendants, those who've come after. And to lead from a place of awareness and mindfulness of the ancestors and the descendants, I think creates a profound obligation to be humble, to be diligent, to move with integrity, you know, the way you described it, daddy practices what he preaches. That's integrity. That's internal consistency. And notice, neither one of us is saying, and has all the answers or fixes all the problems, right? Which is not the common understanding of leadership, right? The common understanding of leadership is you're at the top of the pyramid, so therefore you must be the best or the most powerful or the smartest or whatever, which is utter nonsense, right? It is, but that's still the tirade, and that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> that's mm. still the, the language, and that's communicated time and time again. When you're at the top, you know everything. When you're at the top, it's your role to fix everything. When you're at the top, it's your role to direct. And I'm curious, how have you found it navigating and, I guess, helping leaders, especially the senior leaders that you work with, change their approach and change their perspective to the typical way of leading? Well, the mind trick that I do is to ask them, how's that working for them, right? Because if you get them slow enough and standing still enough and you ask them, you know, how they're really feeling, they'll tell you they're overwhelmed. They're exhausted. They, if they're really honest, they'll tell you that they're walking around with an imposter syndrome. And if they're really, really trusting, they'll tell you how alone they feel. And they may be outwardly successful. The, the organization may be doing well. but when you start to probe from that angle, what you find is there's a tight correlation between that command and control hierarchical structure and all of those feelings. And, you know, my best example of this is when a client will call up and say, why the heck can't they make any decisions without me? And I say, that's a really good question. Why did you set it up that way? And it's like, what? It's like, well, who was in charge? <laughs> Who created the organization? <laughs> oh, you mean I have the power to change this? Yes. Right? And then we get into really complicated questions like, what would you have to change about yourself in order to recreate the organization to allow mm -hmm. a more fluid and dynamic organization structure? Well, then I'm, I'm afraid I'll lose control. Well, that's interesting. Right. So all of a sudden you use that. You asked, how do you do it? How do I do it? I use their own internal state as the wedge, if you will, into and to, to peel back the armor. The other thing I'll say is change this or don't change this. That's it's no skin off my nose. You don't want to change. That's fine. But call me in a year when you're still miserable. Um this is the opportunity right now to make the kind of 
organizational changes that really going to support you as a person and support the entire group of individuals so that they can flourish and be the best possible leaders they can be. There are so many questions I, ha- I have around around that, which I guess also link back into the book you're writing. So rather than me going into that book you're writing, which we can do that, no- <laughs> we can do that another time, I'm going to use that and say, so in the current context right now where you have organizations that are battling with the change to the way of work and the way of hybrid working and the in a sense, not necessarily listening to what their employees want and instead going with that command and control saying, right, we're going to do this and we're going to have two or three days and that's going to be it. But it's like, when you can see the frustrations coming out, when you can hear the surveys coming back and you keep on ignoring that, are people or leaders really listening or are they just going with, well, I'm going to say what's in the system? Because there are times when if you really listen and you really understand and you don't understand active listening, it means you need to stop, you need to reflect, and you need to do something about it. But that also involves a massive change sometimes. And looking at what's happening right now, it feels like leaders are like, mm, this, this seems a bit too much. We've had to do it for the pandemic, but to really, really start taking on board our people's feelings and feedback and feed out into the system and change the way we're not quite sure we really want to do that i have encountered the kind of resistance you just described and what i hear in that resistance is fear and especially for those who have been socialized to feel their power whether it's by status by who they are, the meat bag that they happen to occupy, or by role, the structure within an organization, a society that places power in the hands of certain people. One of the most fearsome acts is to give up power. Because those of us who have power have not necessarily been taught to exist without it. And, and I hear in all of that resistance, the scared little children. Now, because I can feel empathy for and compassion for that scared little child doesn't mean I allow the adult to misbehave. I can simultaneously disallow toxic behavior and empathetically hold the source of that behavior. I can imagine the adult slapping the child, saying to the child, man up, right? We don't talk about our feelings. Or I can imagine that child on a playground being made fun of, being bullied, and shutting down. And I think our job as coaches is to hold both realities simultaneously and to offer that person a path that sometimes means going back in time, teleporting back in time, grabbing the hand of that little kid on the playground and taking them forward 
and saying, to no longer be bullied no longer requires you to be a bully. To stop being bullied no longer requires you to be a bully. There is a better way. That's the pulling together of the two thoughts. You know, I, I spend so much of my work and I really, I know that you do as well, that it really resonates with the work you do in mindset and mindset shifting. We spend this time looking at how are we formed and how does that show up in the current incarnation? And to close the loop is the second half of that is how do we bring that forward into the world? Because when you probe in that organization that I was talking before with the powerful leader who sits at the top of the pyramid, presuming that they have to have all the answers, and you probe with them and you say to them, how are you feeling? And they say, exhausted, overwhelmed, lonely. Part of what's happening is uh, if you turn to the organization and you say to them, how are you doing? And they say, thwarted, frustrated, exhausted uncreative, emotionally depleted. Now we have an opportunity to change the work culture so that thriving becomes part of the core corporate values. And at the end of your days, you get your put, put your head on the pillow and say, I did good work. We met those performance goals and people feel good about themselves. Mazel tov. You did a good, that's the Brooklyn in me coming out. You did a mitzvah. You did a good deed. <laughs> Closing up the loop is, is a really powerful concept. And I actually come at, come at it with a, a different lens of when people are going through either pain painful situations or let's say for example you went you went for went for a job on a Friday and you can spend the whole weekend thinking about all the different things that you didn't say that you could have impacted the interview. But bearing in mind you haven't had the feedback just yet. But you can literally spend the whole weekend focused on this thing or you can look at it as actually I've gone for that job interview. I've said what I've said. I've given the best I can. There's nothing I can do about it. So rather than me stressed and worrying about it over the weekend, I'm just going to leave it alone. Monday, when it get back to me, I'll pick it back up again. But I'm going to relax and enjoy my weekend and be proud of what I've done. And you close the loop that way. And I see, that's a very abstract example, but you see very similar things just played out, just like you just described. And there's something around leadership, fair and going through that fear and then coming out on the side of it to be able to get to the point where you are doing great work and it's about your people. And I want to really focus around that fair bit because there are fears, there's fear that happens internally and there's fear that comes from the external. And for someone like yourself who has been in that position where you're running a massive organization, you had external pressures on you. How do you deal with those external pressures to ensure that they don't impact the way that you 
approach things and people from an internal perspective? The external pressure does not penetrate and alter the internal unless we leave a gate open and we let it in. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, we all care about how the world views us, right? We all sociopathic narcissists, notwithstanding, and those of us in the United States have some direct experience with such leadership. We'll leave it at that. They tend not to care, but the vast majority of us do care about those things. But if I can go into a little Buddhism, for example, for, for, for a moment, one of the basic principles of Buddhism, it's a really liberating thought. And that is that you are fundamentally, basically good. That no matter what you do, no matter who you've hurt, no matter the evil you've done in the world, you are fundamentally, foundationally good. Now, if you just pause for a moment and think about that, that is a radical concept. Now, there are some wisdom traditions in the West, some versions of Christianity, some versions of the monotheistic religions, philosophies coming out of Greece that teach something very similar, which is that you are fundamentally good. But the way it is often interpreted is that your goodness, your value, is wholly dependent upon what other people believe. Did you get an A in school? Did you get the right grades? Did you get the right job? Did you marry the right person? Did you make enough money? Did you go to the right schools? Did you, you know, the list is kind of endless. And it's that break, I think, that is the source of so much of the uh, tension that you're identifying. And so when I can know that I am foundationally, fundamentally lovable, worthy of love, or as I wrote in my book, the first book, worthy of love, safety, and belonging, and I can feel that unshakably, even when I screw up, then the pressures for external performance become the means, as we were saying before, oh, I'm failing to live up to that which people believe in me, not I'm a piece of crap. I am a good person who sometimes fails is a vastly different statement than I am a failure, right? And I don't really know any wisdom tradition that teaches us we are failures. I don't know any religion that starts off with, and God doesn't love you, no matter how broken you may feel. It's what we do with those traditions and those teachings that create problems for us. I didn't mean to get all spiritual. I know this is not a spirituality thing, but. No, but it, it resonates. And that's also a line because I, I talk about faith. I talk about faith a lot, to be honest. And what you just said right now around even when we look at faith concepts, the faith concept doesn't say you're, you're a failure. 
it's the human that's side of us. It's the way that we interpreted and what we've created, the stories we've told ourselves that says you're a failure or very quick to judge other people and point fingers. And we hold on to that. That's right. And it becomes our identity and yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you were naming the, the, the character who interviews for a job on a Friday and spends the whole weekend ruminating about what they did right and what they didn't do and what they did wrong and all of that. And that's one of the human suffering conditions is rumination in that way. You know, another one, a close kissing cousin is the anxiety about the future. If I don't get this right, then what's going to happen? If I don't get this right, I'll, I'll go on a limb here. I don't, I don't know if this was true for you, but we'd never met before, right? So before this interview started, we'd really only talked on email and video came on and I saw your beautiful smiling face. And what I felt almost immediately was kinship. I was like, oh, another long lost brother. And in allowing myself to feel that feeling, I didn't have to think about this interview. I didn't have to think about performing, doing a good job. And I think implicit in that little anecdote is a kind of guidance for dropping the stories. Look in either the computer-mediated screen, look into the eyes of someone, or look into their maskless face from my lips to God's ears, we're all vaccinated. And see the kin. And then you don't have to worry about performing to a story. You know, when an employee comes into you with a complaint or a challenge or a problem, the first thing to do is see the kin. This is my sibling. Like me, they're struggling. Start from that place and then collaboratively solve a problem. First of all, it's a lot less exhausting. And second of all, it's a lot more fun. It's so freeing. It's like there is no showmanship. There's no pretension whatsoever. It's just authenticity. It's just realness. And in the realness, you get connection. In that connection, you get trust. In the trust, you get great relationships. In that great relationships, you now get so many ads that flow through from that. But literally, it just comes from dropping down, letting go of the mask. And just, you said, meeting on that human one-on-one level is a massive, it's like a bridge. Like If you can cross that bridge and you're looking across, you can see someone and you're like, okay, if I look across, I'm seeing a, a human being on the side. And I'm walking, thinking that thought. And as soon as I meet them in the middle and they meet me in the middle, we can then connect. Because we start with a firm grounding of we are human and we're seeing each other as that. That's right. That's right. And then from that place, imagine coming up with creative solutions. From that place, you know, imagine coming up with innovations. I mean, I'm often called into organizations and uh, they say, you know, we have an innovation problem. I said, well, let's talk about trust. It's like, trust? Why am I talking about trust? It's like, well, how can you release the best creative thoughts? Because that's vulnerable. What if I come up with an idea and everybody laughs at it? That connection, by the way, which must begin with Mm -hmm. the person who holds the most power. The person who holds power has to go first. And if the person who holds power 
forgive my colloquialism, doesn't have their shit together, they're not going to go first. And if they don't go first, then the whole organization misses the opportunity to be a place of thriving and growth and development and innovation and fun. All because that, that one person or those, that group of people who hold power, like, yeah, no, 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 it's too risky. I'm not going to go first. I'm going to make sure everybody else in my organization gets a coach, but I, me, no, I'm not. Everybody should have a feedback system, but I'm not going to have a 360. No way. Right. How the ego sometimes. When you talk about that radical self-inquiry, but for you to have that radical self-inquiry, you need to sacrifice the ego. Because you need to be willing to sit with yourself and sit in that mess that can sometimes exist in your thoughts. But if you're not willing to do that, then that's where you now get ladies, like you said, who everyone can have a coach, but I don't need that. I don't need someone else telling me what to do or someone else having a different perspective to me. That's that's for them. That's not me. When you have that separation. I, I think you I think you just said it very, very well. And it, it brings to mind a, a funny little story. I went to see my one of my Buddhist teachers, Ani Pema Chodron, and we were having tea one afternoon. And she said, so, Jerry, you know, how's it going? What are you doing? And I just started off as a coach. And I said, oh, Ani, you know, my clients are just, they're hurting so badly. Their whole sense of self is destroyed because of what's going on. And without missing a beat, she just looks at me deadpanned. And she says, oh, you mean in a negative way? <laughs> what she's talking about is the Buddhist notion that the first step is to destroy that ego, <laughs> to destroy that that self. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get, I get that. What I really mean is that sense of like worthiness being destroyed. So, yeah, there's um an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago, which is called "Get to Worthy," and it was literally around around that around hmm. that sacrifice of the ego laying that all down and letting go of the pretense and it reminded me of a I'm sure there's John Maxwell quote that said if you're lonely at the top you're doing something wrong because that's something you hear time and time again mm. where it's lonely at the top you're like well you shouldn't be lonely if you've got the right people if you open up the doors and the relationships you shouldn't be lonely you should have people surround you who are there to help you support you guide you if you're lonely then you're doing this alone intentionally then you need to ask yourself, what's wrong? Right. Or uh, how has it served me to carry this burden by myself? Because we don't tend to look at the behaviors that we want to change as being in service to some part of our structure and some part of our ego. And, you know, some people like to complain that it's all on them. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, the organization couldn't exist without me. It's like, then you've done a bad job as a leader. <laughs> Your first primary job is to grow more leaders. But what if they replace me? Exactly. Right? That's what we're supposed to do. It's very that's scary. scary. As I said before, you know, when we have power, we're not told, we're not taught what to do to give up power. We're not taught 
that giving up power doesn't mean our death. We need to understand that true safety, true power, true belonging comes with shared power, shared governance, shared equitable leadership. I've got your back. You've got my back. We go forward. How can that message be delivered more to to leaders? I mean, because of the... (laughs) (laughs) Every moment. And that's what I'm going to say there is, you have, obviously you have a background as a CEO, not just a coach, but with what you've done with Jake Morgan and um, flying and all of that. So you have a lot of experience behind you. You have a clout behind you. And then there might be other people who are like, well, I don't, I don't have that or I don't have the privilege or I'm not white, but I know this message is something that leaders need to hear and leaders need to understand. So how would you go about sharing that message in a way that really potentially taps into those leaders who are not, who are not listening? Let's imagine, and, and let's recognize that this, this answer is coming from a place of someone who has privilege. But if we imagine that the task that we're identifying, which is how does this message get through to leaders generally? If we imagine that that's a boulder that we're trying to push up a hill, and the task is Sisyphean, and if you remember the Sisyphean, the myth of Sisyphus, as punishment, he was condemned to roll a boulder up the hill only to watch it roll right back down again. And there's something very powerful in that as the image here, because this is a practice. This is not roll it up the hill and then we're done. Let's go have some hot dogs, right? And if we see this as the work of adulthood, the work of human beings, then we can realize that I can put my shoulder to that stone right next to you. And to your other side is perhaps a woman of color. And to the other side is perhaps another person who comes from a marginalized social location. And we put our shoulders to that boulder together. And we do the parts that are our part. For karma reasons, for historical reasons, I can step into a, you know, a classically white-dominated space and speak in one way. And because I can do that, I am morally obligated to do that. It is my obligation to do my part of the work. That that struck you, that phrase, that notion of moral obligation. Yeah, it did. The, the reason why it did was not that I don't agree with it. I do agree with it. But it's actually that notion of why is my moral obligation to step mm-hmm. into that space? Why should I use my privilege to have those kind of conversations? Why should I stick my head out and, and do something? about a situation I see occurring. Do you remember in Spider-Man when Peter Parker's uncle Ben was dying and he, Peter leans down to him 
And Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility. That is a moral truth. And, you know, uh, Marvel Comics is another wisdom tradition in my life. Here again, I have yet to encounter a wisdom tradition, a religion, a spirituality that says, with great power comes no responsibility. We as human beings have been preaching this to ourselves for millennia. Read Shakespeare, read Aristotle, read the Buddha, read Jesus's teachings, read Moses's teachings, read the prophet's teachings. Okay, when there's such consistent messaging coming from a wide variety of sources, chances are really good scientifically, it's the truth. And the truth is, with great power comes great responsibility. That's why it's a moral obligation. Remember before I said awareness of ancestors and descendants? Okay, my ancestors are watching. My ancestors didn't always have power. My ancestors found a way to economic prosperity by emigrating from Italy to the United States. My descendants, my children, are born into privilege that my grandparents created. My grandparents and the society and the way it's racialized. When my grandparents came to the United States, they were not considered white. And somewhere magically along the way, they got racialized as white. Who the f*** knows? And so my children, who are biracial, they have a moral and ethical responsibility to live up to what my ancestors helped create. Shoulder to the boulder, push it up the hill. Yeah, that's powerful. Is. I don't know how else we create the world that we know is possible. Imagine revolution that occurs when people with power join together with people who have less power. Oh, that's how the world changes. It's not that complicated. It should not be that complicated and yet it is yet it's well at the phrase i used in my book it's not complicated it's hard <laughs> it's hard but it's not complicated right and what makes it hard if we go back to some root concepts it means that those of us who have power have to be willing to give up power we have to live with the consequences of our love, safety, and belonging being threatened, just like everybody else. And what we lose, what we forget, is that if we're all really shoulder to the boulder, if we're all really willing to step into the place where our significance, as the poet David White says, where our significance is at risk, then together, we can move that boulder up the hill. And, you know, till my dying day, 
this is what I will work towards. What would success look like to you? On, on this question? Yeah. I can tell you what it feels like. When I was doing the book tour after my book came out, book came out two years ago now. And so for half of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, I was out and about. And I remember doing a talk in Dublin. And the room was, as you can imagine, fairly white. And there were a number of men. And I was talking about how men are, are, as young boys, are often not taught what to do with suffering. And part of the response is to be early parentified, to, to step into caretaker roles and, and do things. And as I'm talking about this, there's a black woman sitting in the first row taking notes very, very furiously. And at the end of the talk, she came up to me and she said, I was really fascinated by that, that experience of being early promoted into parenthood leadership was my experience. And I, I was tired and I kind of was listening, not listening kind of thing. And then she said, yeah, I lost my father at 13. I was like, that's fine. And then she said, on Robbins Island. And I sort of stopped. And of course, that's where Nelson Mandela was held. And she made it clear that he'd been killed by the police. But then she said something really powerful to me. She said, your story is my story. And on the surface, nothing could be further from the truth, right? White Italian-American kid from Brooklyn, New York. And yet, the universality of this experience of being human is incredibly compelling. So to go back to what does success look like, success looks like People looking at me and saying what you said just a few minutes ago, when you say it, it sounds simple, but it's really hard because when I say it and it sounds simple, sorry about this, but now you have a moral and ethical responsibility to live into your power and your responsibility, even in situations where you may have less power than the next person. That's what success looks like to me. When people reach out across time and space and say, your story is my story, what they're affirming is the shared human experience and the interdependence that we all have. Because that boulder doesn't get up the hill by itself, and it ain't ever going to get up the hill with one person pushing it. Or it'll get up the hill and it'll roll right back down and kill the guy. So, success means us all in it together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Everyday Leadership. If you enjoy this and you want to hear some more, which I'm sure you definitely do, make sure you look us up on www.mindsetshift.co.uk. We are also on Apple and Spotify and all your favorite streaming platforms. But why on those two? Make sure you just follow, you leave a review because it all makes a massive difference. I look forward to next week's episode as we celebrate 50. And I do that by having my wife as a guest on my show. And you don't want to miss that.